I'd love for you to please stand as I read Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, and uh, we're glad you're here today. So welcome. My name is Tom, and uh, I have the joy of serving on the teaching team at Christ Community. But welcome to the Lidlewood campus and to the Christ Community family. And as we often say, we hope you feel loved here, and uh, we are really glad you're here on this morning. So thank you for coming. It means a lot to all of us. So we're all glad you're here, whether you've been here a long time or just newer. So what do you do when you find yourself in the wrong? 
when you feel like you're in so deep, there is no way out. I was really moved by an article in the British Guardian not too long ago. The title is classic. It's entitled, The Three Weeks That Changed the World. This British newspaper looks with incredible clarity and insight on the global financial crisis of 2008. You may remember with the collapse of the giant investment bank Lehman Brothers, a bunch of financial firms, too big to fail, um, had a domino effect. A whole bunch of financial firms, names that are familiar, Merrill Lynch, for example, AIG, Freddie Mac, and on down the road, were rescued to prevent a world banking system collapse. What I also found amazing was the 2015 Academy Award winning movie for, I think, its best adapted screenplay was The Big Short. Did you see this movie? It's actually uh, based on a really good nonfiction book and uh, is quite well done in terms of its historical veracity. But I love the focus on the human faces in the economic crisis. The movie does a brilliant job of this. It focuses on individuals caught up in the euphoria of the subprime market bubble. And there were people who saw what was going on, of course, but lived in denial. And then there were leaders, government and financial leaders like Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke and New York Federal Reserve Head, all these names you probably remember, Timothy Geithner. And of course, there was Lehman Brothers Chairman Richard Full Jr., and there were more, and they found themselves literally up to their necks in deep financial water, backed into the corner of extraordinary fear. So how did they respond? Well, the inconvenient truth of history is that many leaders defensively dug in. They denied wrong judgment or wrongdoing, and they deflected the blame on others. But lest we are quick to sort of point fingers of judgment at these leaders, we too dig in, don't we? We too deny, we too blame others. Especially when we find ourselves in life so deep and in such a fear-filled corner, there seems to be no way out. We've all had that experience, haven't we? We may find ourselves in a deep ethical corner at work. Our future career is on the line. Perhaps the vitality and viability of the business we have invested so much in is on the line, and we find ourselves in a fear-filled corner with no way out. You may have stared into a financial black hole. Maybe you are or have been smothering in debt, and there's no way out. Many of us have been in a relationship, or maybe you're in a relationship this morning. You know it's not healthy, not God-honoring, but you are so emotionally invested in it, you can't see your way forward. You simply have gone too far, and there is no turning back. So what do we do when we're backed into a fear-filled corner up to our neck? Is there a way out? 
This morning we're going to encounter people just like you and me. People who find themselves up to their neck, having gone too far, and there seems to be no way out. How did they respond? Let's take a closer look. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the first Gospel writing in the New Testament, first book. Let's turn to chapter 27. So if you'll join me in... Walk across the sands of time, put on your sandals, let's go back into the first century. You ready? It's a dark night, dark shadows. It's a Thursday night in AD 33. Jesus is arrested, and with trumped up charges, Jesus is put on trial. Matthew, the gospel writer, describes these fast moving events of that day that literally would change the world. The gospel writer Matthew brilliantly helps us see the differing responses of those who are already too far in the wrong, who have gone too far that they believe they cannot simply turn back. If you were here with us last week, we explored the end of chapter 26. Boy, did we encounter Peter's massive failure in denying Jesus. Yet in that darkness of unimaginable failure, we uncovered a hope-filled gospel truth. And that is that while failure is inevitable, it is not fatal. And on the heels of the narrative trajectory of this brilliant text, we now come to the morning. And this morning, there is a dark and churning wake of such grievous wrongdoing and such grave injustice, it takes our breath away. But in the midst of this, we find a hope-filled truth of the gospel. And it will emerge and emerge and emerge. And that is this. When we have gone too far, we are never too far gone. When we have gone too far, we are never too far gone. Here in chapter 27, Matthew shines his light on three different focal points. First, the Jewish religious leaders, Roman governor Pilate and Jesus' disciple Judas. All three are backed into a distinct corner of fear. And they express and exhibit three different postures. The religious leaders will assume a defensive posture. Roman governor Pilate will assume a deflecting posture. And Judas, yes, Judas, will reflect a despairing posture. Now, Matthew arranges these three focal points, not in chronological order or narratival order, but in a literary form. So I am going to follow the chronological order this morning. We're going to first look at defensive posture, deflective posture, and then despairing posture. First, the defensive posture. Look at me at verses 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. At the break of dawn, you remember last week, the rooster crowed. 
Matthew now moves our attention on the Jewish religious leaders and the aristocracy. Matthew employs a very important Greek word that is impregnated in meaning and significance of which our English phrase does not fully capture. You will notice in your English text a translation is something like, take counsel. Underlying this English phrase is the Greek word that brings the sense of premeditated, conspiratorial, collaborative planning. In other words, Matthew wants us to know right out of the blocks, this plan has one desired outcome and that's it. Matthew clearly states it in the text, that is, to put Jesus to death. The religious establishment in Jerusalem are hell-bent on getting rid of Jesus no matter what they have to do. But the gospel writers tell us, history tells us, they have a legal problem. Because under Roman rule, the Jewish leaders had a lot, a long leash, but they didn't have a long enough leash to demand capital punishment. Now, don't forget, these leaders knew Jesus wasn't a Roman citizen. Meaning that Jesus could receive the most torturous and humiliating death imaginable. Crucifixion. Did these religious leaders know what they were doing? Did they know they were engaging in wrongdoing? You better believe they did. Their kangaroo court that night violated the law. When we study the Old Testament Torah, we understand that the priest tearing the robe violated the Old Testament law. Let alone false witnesses violated the law. You bet they knew. But once the plan is hatched, once they have gone so far they cannot turn back, they hunker down. They justify what they are doing by painting Jesus in the most damning light imaginable as a threat to Rome, for goodness sakes, and to the God they worshipped. Now, we must not miss the pernicious evil of religiously motivated wrongdoing here and the defensive posture religious leaders can take to preserve their power and the status quo. For 200 years, Falls Church in Virginia was the church way back that George Washington attended. Falls Church for 200 some years has been a bright gospel light in the Washington DC area. That is until a few years ago, their denominational leadership decided Falls Church's historic orthodox views around traditional marriage were untenable for the times. And rather than violate their orthodox convictions that the scriptures teach so compellingly, the congregation of Falls Church decided to amicably leave the denominational structure, but the denominational leaders refused and filed a lawsuit against the congregation. After spending around a million dollars in legal fees, the Falls Church congregation eventually lost litigation to the Virginia Supreme Court 
who finally ruled in favor of the denominational leaders. The court ordered Falls Church out of its buildings, out of its property, and seized every bit of their assets. Pastor John Yates, who has led and leads this thriving congregation, is a personal friend. And through this ordeal, recounted to me on the phone and in person several times, the vitriol, the religious-motivated hatred his church experienced from religious leaders. The good news is while the church, Falls Church, lost every one of its assets, it continues to thrive in a new location. But Falls Church's experience is a painful reminder for all of us that religiously motivated injustice is not just a first century reality. It extends across the landscape of human history. No one said it better than 16th century French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. Pascal said it. He said, men never do evil so willingly than they do in the name of God. Those words though uttered later, are the perfect canopy over this narrative. After abusing and falsely accusing Jesus in this midnight kangaroo court, religious leaders now bind Jesus and take him to Roman governor Pilate. Pilate finds himself backed into a corner in a chess match of power with the religious leaders. He exhibits the second posture, and that is a deflecting posture. Who was this governor? Who was the Roman leader who is legally responsible for Jesus' ex execution, his crucifixion? We know some about him, actually. We know quite a bit about Pilate from Jewish historian Josephus and Roman historian Tacitus. Pilate was the governor of Judea, 26 to 37 AD. Evidence suggests Pilate was an officer in the Roman army before he was, quote, promoted. Pilate does not figure well or prominently in any Roman history. And this tells us something. His assignment to Judea from Rome's vantage point was no plum. No plum. Some of those who served in Pilate's role before wrote about how bad it was. Now think about a football coach or a basketball coach inheriting a terrible program for years and years and years at the, at the cellar, right? It's like a dead-end job. This is what Pilate inherited. Pilate was frustrated, clearly, and he was in the most difficult position. And the Jewish people, these loony people, according to the Romans, had all these religious weirdo things going on. That's how he thought of them. They were loony. But he had to govern them. And he did. History points out that Pilate ruled Judea with an iron fist. Jewish historians Josephus and Philo describe Pilate, get this, as stubborn and cruel. And yes, the gospel writer Luke talks about him earlier in his gospel. And it's not very nice. In Luke chapter 13, 1 Luke says, at that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
Pilate was smart, but he was cruel. He was crafty, but he was brutal. Pilate lived in a very palatial uh, estate on the Mediterranean Sea, the most beautiful place in all of Israel. The last place he wanted to go was in Hicksville. That's how he viewed Jerusalem. But he had to go there at least once a year because during Passover, things went loony in Jerusalem from his standpoint. So he doesn't want to be there, but he had to be there. He has no idea what he's going to face in that early morning hour. Matthew invites us to a front row seat here. Verses 11 through 14, Pilate's encounter with Jesus. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus very evasively says, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. See, the repetition twice of no answer. Don't miss that. Not even to a single charge so that the governor was, a better translation, was astonished beyond belief. What's going on here? Pilate grew up in a tradition. It's a Stoic tradition of philosophy. Greco-Roman understanding of the world that we might say simply is that a grin and bear it sort of toughness a virtuous toughness in the face of tragedy. Pilate understood Stoic philosophy, and here is a brilliant man in front of him who he is stunned by his Stoicism. He just can't quite figure Jesus out. But he's very impressed with Jesus' refusal to answer charges, his Stoic nature. Matthew gives us a sort of concise picture of this conversation. And when we read the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke and John, it helps us gain a more comprehensive picture of what happened in these moments. These differing accounts are not contradictory in any way, but help us complete more of the story and further verify the historical reliability and authenticity of the gospel writers. When we bring these accounts together, there is a five-fold flow of what happened on that Friday morning with Pilate. Let me highlight it, and I'm going to press in more. First, Pilate questions Jesus. Second, Pilate sends Jesus to King Herod, who's going to just send him right back to Pilate. Third, Pilate rules Jesus is not deserving of the death penalty. He does it, when we all writers get three times. Fourth, Pilate will try to offer this compromise like the Godfather, like an offer they can't refuse. And finally, fifth, he caves in and allows Jesus to be crucified. So let's follow the flow of what happened. First, Pilate questions Jesus. Matthew gives us an initial question, and we probably should read it like, are you the king of the Jews? Hmm. Of course, anyone claiming to be king for Pilate 
deserve some questioning. Now, while Jesus does not answer the accusations against him, Pilate is deeply impressed by his unflinching stoicism. But the gospel writer John, who is an eyewitness to this, gives us more of the conversation Jesus had with Pilate. And if you want to scoot over there, just listen. I'm going to highlight it, John chapter 8, verses 33 to 38. John says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again, right? This is the second time. And called Jesus again and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say that to you about me? Pilate answered him, I'm a Jew. Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What on earth have you done? Pilate's incredulous. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate says to him, so let me get this right. You're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. And it's for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. That is, Pilate, to bear witness to the truth. He's saying, Pilate, you know Stoicism, you know the great philosophers. It's about what is true. He's engaging him at an intellectual level. And then Jesus blows him out of the water. Everyone who is of the truth, Pilate, listens to me. And Pilate says, come on, what is truth? Pilate knows Jesus is a brilliant philosopher. And he also knows he's no political threat. And Matthew gives us, isn't this beautiful? Matthew gives us a glimpse that Pilate was one sharp dude. Pilate can clearly see through it all. He's seen it all. In chapter 27, verse 18 of Matthew, he says, all the religious leaders, ah, they're just envious of you, Jesus. They're threatened by your growing popularity because Jesus was the rock star of the day. He was the Taylor Swift or whatever who do you want to talk about. Everybody knew about him. He was. And not only did everybody know about him, there's a person that really, really was interested in meeting him. Herod the Great, one of his sons, Herod Antipas, who ruled the northern sections of Judea where Jesus grew up and did many of his miracles. And Pilate's thinking, ah, Herod Antipas, he's hanging out with us in Passover too. He's up here, he's in Jerusalem. So, okay, here you go. Let him have him. This hot potato. So he sends, secondly, right? Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. You follow this now? The Gospel writer Luke tells us Luke 23, 6 through 12, if you want to read it more later, that Jesus' encounter with King Herod was very different than Pilate. Jesus will not say a word to him. Not a word. And if you remember the gospel writer Matthew, he's given us a pretty good hint why. If your best friend got executed by someone, you wouldn't like him either. And we know, Matthew says in chapter 14 earlier, Jesus' closest earthly friend early on, John the Baptist, was executed by Herod on a whim. Nice guy, huh? 
And Herod, he says to Jesus, I want to see all those miracles. Come on. Jesus will not do anything. And they mock Jesus, put a robe on him, his henchmen, and send him back to Pilate, maybe in an hour or two. Just get out of here. So the third flow of the narrative is, here's Jesus back again in front of Pilate. For the third time, Jesus and Pilate have some kind of interaction, but Pilate basically says to all the crowd, he's innocent. And somewhere in here, we don't know exactly when, there's another drama that happens. It's Pilate's wife. Is that classic? We don't know anything about her in history. But Pilate's wife sends a message to Pilate in the morning, which was unthinkable. It's like an urgent text from my wife, right? I look at it in my cell phone. It gets Pilate's attention big time. This is not about what to bring home for dinner. Verse 19, Matthew gives us her words. Have nothing to do with that, quote, righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Do you love the dripping irony that Matthew wants us to marinate in? Here is a, quote, pagan Roman woman who not only knows Jesus is completely innocent, she also is the only one who is willing to see Jesus for who he really is. A sadiq, a righteous man. Pilate is in a corner. Isn't he? He's feeling the heat from every side, including his wife. He can't find a way out. But somehow, in the midst of his struggle and fear, he has the fourth movement of the narrative, and that is that he has this idea of compromise, an offer they can't refuse. He, he is convinced. Think of Barabbas like this. Barabbas, this is a tradition, but Barabbas is a combination between a Ben Laden terrorist and Charles Manson. He is one bad person. Randy Singer in his novel, historical novel, gets this right, I think. And the advocate captures this moment. Listen to how he writes. Bring out Barabbas, Pilate ordered. A few minutes later, the wild man was dragged to the bottom of the portico steps. Hair disheveled, a maniacal look in his eyes. They stood him next to Jesus. You feeling the contrast? As if on cue, Barabbas cursed and tried to attack the Roman guards. They beat him into submission and drove him to the ground. We have a custom, Pilate shouted. Historically at Passover, we have released one prisoner. Do you want me to release Jesus or Barabbas? The words were no sooner out of his mouth. And the crowd started shouting the name of Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Here's where Singer gets it perfect. Pilate was absolutely stunned. Each of the gospel writers described Pilate's repeated attempts to declare Jesus' innocence to dissuade the crowd from their bloodthirsty, envious, driven hatred. But the religious leaders hold the ultimate trump card. And now they play it. Checkmate. John, who's right there. John 19, verse 12, captures this moment. They checkmate Pilate. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Those words were the game changer. They struck terror in Pilate's tough heart. Because the last thing on earth Pilate ever wanted to do was to have anyone, anyone question his loyalty to Caesar. If you lost favor with Caesar, it was not only the end of the career you loved. It was your life. So fifth, Pilate finally caves in and capitulates. Matthew describes it in verses 24 through 26. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is just standing there silent. And Matthew wants us to marinate in the irony once again. Pilate is trying to deflect the blame, isn't he? And distance himself from his responsibility and culpability, isn't he? And he tries to do that in an external manner by washing his hands. But the irony is that washing his hands will not absolve him of his moral and personal guilt and culpability. Only the shed blood of the one he just condemned can ever do that. Did you see that? Matthew wants us just to be arrested at this moment. When the religious leaders have gone too far, they hunker down. They're defensive. When Pilate is backed into a corner, he seeks to deflect the blame on others. But there's still another person in the story. Matthew now shines his spotlight. We don't know exactly when this occurs in the narrative, but we know who it is. His name is Judas. Have you ever met someone named Judas? I like lots of biblical names, but that's one I'm still out to meet. If there's a Judas out here, just tell me, okay? <laughs> Judas exhibits a despairing posture. Isn't it amazing for having spent three years with Jesus, at the end of his life, Judas, Matthew only gives him eight short verses, shorter in the original text, almost as an afterthought. Judas did the unimaginable. He portrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He was the one that had the purse. And as things begin to unravel that Friday morning, Matthew tells us in verses 3 through 10, if you follow along, that Judas has a change in mind. He does. He tries to change the course of events by declaring Jesus' innocence. He tries to give the money back to the leaders. They'll have no part of it. Why? Because the train of injustice has already left the station, and the religious leaders will not let anything derail its Golgotha destination. Verse 5, Matthew 27, we read, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. What a tragic end. In that dark hole of despair, Judas must have believed the greatest lie from hell itself, that he had committed the unforgivable sin. And Matthew wants us to pause. 
He wants us to wonder, what if instead of taking his life, Judas had fallen at his knees on the cross and found new life? What if? What if instead of running from Jesus, Judas had reached out to Jesus? See, behind each of the religious leader's response, Pilate's response, and Judas' response is a continuity of deep fear. They have gone too far, and what is settling in their souls is jealousy, fear, and panic. But God's word declares with crystal clarity, perfect love casts out fear. Anytime fear or panic overwhelms us, we can still reach for Christ, the one who is perfect love. What we must not miss is that Matthew not only gives us amazing historical events to grasp with our mind, he wants us to see our own sinful hearts here in the story, does he not? We too are like religious leaders. Rather than repent of our sin, we too hunker down in self-righteous, self-justifying, rationalization postures. Do we not? I do. We too are like Roman governor Pilate. Rather than repent of our sin, we are often quick to blame others, our parents, our genes, our background. Rather than seeking to deal with our own sin, we are quick to blame others. And we are like Judas, aren't we? Aren't we? Rather than repent of our sin, we assume a posture of despair, realizing our betrayal of Jesus with our innumerable sins of commission and omission, and we somehow tell ourselves that they are unforgivable, that it's all over for us. And after all, it was not just the religious leader's sin or Pilate's sin or Judas' sin that put Jesus on the cross. Your sin and my sin put Jesus on the cross too. So what do you do when you find yourself in the wrong? What do you do when you're in so deep there is no way out? Will you be like the religious leaders? Will you become defensive and dig in? Will you be like Pilate and deflect? Will you be like Judas and despair? Or will you reach out to the greatest lover of your soul and repent? Will you humbly admit your sin, turn from your sin, and place your complete trust in Jesus? See, Jesus' death on the cross was the result of great evil and injustice, but it was never a tragedy. It was the ultimate triumph cross was not an accident. It was an essential part of the sovereign plan of God to rescue a lost and dying world, to rescue you and me. The good news of the gospel for both religious and irreligious people is when we have gone too far, we are never too far gone. The gospel writers reinforce this hope-filled truth, telling us that Jesus was crucified not alone, but with two other criminals. One criminal rejects Jesus, but the other criminal reaches out to Jesus. And the words from Jesus' mouth are filled with such profound hope for you and me. Jesus looks at this guy, and he says, or the guy says first to Jesus, or Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus looks at him with overwhelming divine love of intensity. Just truly I say to you, 
today, you will be with me in paradise. I don't know all what that criminal was thinking, but he must have thought he was too far gone. But reaching out to Jesus on the cross, he grasped and was grasped by the good news of the gospel. That even when we have gone too far, we are never too far gone. This morning we pause to celebrate with great joy and thanksgiving Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. When we partake of Holy Communion, in some traditions it's called Eucharist, others the Lord's Supper, Eucharist in the Greek means thanksgiving. We express our thanksgiving to Jesus in very tactile ways. And we're reminded that any time we can reach for the cross because the cross reaches to us. And we remember that even when we have gone too far, we are never too far gone. That Jesus' nail-scarred hands embraces us and welcomes sinful, fearful hearts safely home to him. The Apostle Paul, in framing the liturgy of the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or Holy Communion, places thanksgiving for Jesus' atoning death on the cross at the very center of the liturgy with these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's prepare our hearts in prayer as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let us pray. Father, your word says that if we say that we do not have sin, there is no truth in us and we are deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sin, you are faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, wherever we are this morning, may we come to you. May we not be defensive. May we not deflect our sin on others. May we not be despairing, but may we reach out to you and find new life and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.